to Grow Your Dental Practice podcast. I'm your host, Mohammed Ismail. I'm a cloud accounting expert and a business advisor to dental and medical professionals. My firm, Shift Accounting, has helped our clients reach their financial goals. How do we do this? Well, we offer awesome bookkeeping and business consultancy. Our monthly management reports provide valuable financial insights. These insights can help you improve your profitability and get you to your goal faster. Our goal for the Grow Your Dental podcast is to provide you with valuable resources to help you build, manage, and grow your dental practice. I interview experts in a variety of areas. Whether you are just thinking about starting your own practice or you're already well on your way, there's something for everyone here. We wanted to start the podcast off with a bang, so we released the entire full season so you can get started. We'll be back later this year to continue providing you with valuable insights and expert opinion for starting and managing and growing your dental practice. Enjoy the show. We have got the basics down, negotiating a lease, brokering a deal, and getting a loan. Now it's time to meet another important member of your clinic setup and management team, the accountant. We are going to dig into the accounting aspect of your clinic setup. Tom Christensen from Dorward & Company will join us to talk about why incorporate, should you build or buy, and how do you do it? How do you actually purchase a dental clinic? Let's dig into accounting. We are very excited to welcome our special guest for today's episode, Tom Christensen. I'm very excited about recording this episode with you uh, because we're going to be talking about accounting stuff. I mean, who said accounting is boring? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, Tom, can you give our wonderful listeners here uh, a short introduction about yourself? Sure. I grew up in um, southern Alberta in a town called Tabor, and um, uh, my my father was a, a rural physician there. Um, when I went up to university, I went to Edmonton, and then I went over to the U of S and did a master's there. Um, decided that uh, master's in accounting. Um, then I articled with a firm downtown. Uh, after that, I um, wanted to look at working in industry. I wasn't entirely sure if public accounting was the right fit for me. Um, and I worked a little bit in industry, and then I passed my exam, needed a few more audit hours, and went over to a, a practice that was founded by uh, David Dorwood called Dorwood & Company, and um, I saw a business model that I liked. And... Um, that's that's where I that's that's where I've stayed ever since then and so now um now I I've worked there for over 10 years I believe and wow. uh live with my family in Edmonton and we have a an 8 year old and a um a daughter who just turned 2 and I just had a son and he's about 5 months um so that keeps me busy and yeah, and so Edmonton is where I call home. I sleep. <laughs> I, I, um, if I answered no, my wife would probably say, yes, you do. So I manage to sleep pretty well. My wife is perhaps not sleeping so well. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, well, I mean, let's start with the basic thing is like, you know, um, why incorporate? Well, that's a good question, and it's a question that has had different answers to the the healthcare community um, throughout the past 10 years. Um, so one of the 
pre-recently, pre-January 1st, 2018, when they expanded tax on split income rules, um, and post-April 2010, when they let non-professionals own shares of PCs, there were two reasons um, why you might incorporate. So during that eight-year window, we had um, the ability to split income through dividends. Um, and dividends have always been connected to property rights, meaning that if you owned shares of a company, you could um, receive benefits from that property. Um, so pre-2010, non-professional spouses weren't allowed to own shares of corporations. And then post-January 1st, 2018, we're not able to issue dividends according to just simple property rules, we have to now apply different tests. So for eight years, there's kind of another reason, which was I might be able to income split some money early. So for example, in my case, if I was if I was a professional who was earning um, a good living and my wife is currently um, works with our children all the time at home, so she's a stay-at-home mom, so her income is less, I would be able to shift income off of my bracket and onto her. Um, when January 1st, 2018 came around, the the tests surrounding that tax mechanism got um, much more robust and gray. Um, and so now that reason is, is for the most part, eliminated um, unless you are going to um, involve your spouse or family in the business um, or some other way. Um, then it becomes a question of, okay, well, if I distill all of that down and I say, well, was there still advantages of incorporating? Well, the corporate tax rate in Alberta is going down to 11%. Personal tax rates, um, the top bracket in Alberta is 48%. Um, so theoretically, if you are a high income earner, every dollar that you can afford to keep inside of your corporation and not take out personally, um, you would be ahead 48 minus the 11 cents, so you'd be ahead 37 cents on every dollar. That dollar, or that 37 cents, can stay in your business and be used to um, buy more equipment. Um, it can be used to service even debt that you have. Um, and it can be used as, a, it's a deferral mechanism for many professionals also who don't have pension plans and they're responsible for their own retirements. They have RSPs, of course, but the RRSP room, you are allowed to um, have available to you. You can only put in so much, which some people might view as insufficient um, for their retirement. So what they'll have to do is find other places to put money. And so oftentimes your professional corporation will be that parking spot for that money. So it, it allows you to expand your business at, at only a corporate rate of tax, which means that gives you an advantage of at most 37 cents on every dollar. Um, and that's at most provided you're able to leave that money in the business. Sometimes though, it feels like you don't leave money in the business when you actually are. For example, if you have debt, it might not feel like you have a lot of cash, but you're, if you built a practice or a clinic, you'll have to pay the bank back. Um, and so you would have money, but for the bank. Um, so really you are saving money, you're just having to pay the bank back the money you didn't have when you built your clinic. Um, so why incorporate now I think has distilled down in my mind to um, do I have any excess income that I generate um, and, and what are my plans with that income and if the plans will be I can put it to work inside my corporation for a 
business purpose um, or a retirement purpose, um, then it makes sense to incorporate. So there's the simple question and the long answer. <laughs> I love it. Okay, now I'm convinced that I need to incorporate. <laughs> so <clears throat> I, I'm trying to, you know, um, I'm out, you know, uh, practicing dentists now, and I'm thinking to own. Uh, from a business standpoint, can you give me um, or evaluate for me is the option of build versus buy? Oh, that is the... That is a question to which there is no, of course, templated answer. Um, so it really depends on on what your um, what your risk tolerance is, and also a big factor that is outside of just what numbers on a spreadsheet say is what opportunities are available. Um, so the it's in in my mind it comes down to if I throw in a blender all of the factors that you need to look at to figure that out, it comes down to risk, reward, and opportunity cost. Um, so for example, um, when you build, in general, there is some, the most valuable part of, well, let's do buy first. The most valuable part of when you buy is typically the something called goodwill, which is an intangible asset. It is... Um, it is the staff that is in place, the location that has been present, the, the signage that's out front, the patients that have been attracted there, um, and all of those intangible things. So it's not a physical asset. It is just um, your relationship with your employees and with your patients um, and your physical location, um, the lease that you have, the right to use a certain space. Um, so when you when you buy, that has already been established for you, and the appraisal will will put suggest a value for that goodwill, and they'll also um, suggest values for the other components, or typically leasehold improvements, which are the things that are attached to the walls, um, and the equipment, which is you know X-ray machines or chairs or what have you. Um, so those are the big three. Um, segments of goodwill and then sometimes there's some supplies and consumables that are also on hand um, so when you build those things are there and it's working you don't have to recruit a nurse or recruit an assistant you don't have to recruit a hygienist you don't have to wonder if your hygienist will get along with your patients or not you don't have to wonder those things those questions are removed the questions then become okay if the retiring um, professional is gone and i am there how well do I integrate with that team and how well do I integrate with that patient base? And if you integrate well, you can pretty much assume that maybe, you know, 10 to 15% of the existing patients that visited that practice might attrit and they might go elsewhere because, you know, they just, the, the, the professional was their uncle or what have you. And you'll, you might lose some of those. You'll also attract some by those same measures. Um, and you're pretty much, as long as you can transition that practice, the staff and the patient base seamlessly, then you'll know that you will be able to profit. Um, so, so that's kind of like the, the two biggest risks is managing the existing team and, and retaining the customer list. That's, that's what I view it as. The, the customers and the patients are the ones who keep the lights on and the team is the ones that is there to, um, are the team are there to um, service the needs of the patients in the clinic. Um, so you need both of those, and, and mistakenly sometimes people, when they look to buy, only look at one of those. Um, and I, I think that's a bit of a mistake because you, you have to look at how well both of those things are. And 
Now, the, the downsides of those are if you don't transition those very well, then you have paid possibly the biggest portion of the purchase price. You've paid that and you might not be getting value for that. So in, in my mind, the transition of the goodwill is, um, is, is the most important part of the build um, or of the buy. Um, and, and that is where your risk lies. But as long as you can do that well, your risk is much less because when you build, you are going to attempt to not pay for that goodwill, which means you're going to have to um, find staff, get um, employment agreements in place, set up systems, mechanisms all from scratch. Um, you're going to have to choose a location. Unbeknownst to you, maybe there's another um, dental practice opening up down the street. Um, I've had that happen before and there's no way of knowing that. Um, and so there is some risk established with that, but the reward is potentially that you don't have to pay for something, which is oftentimes the most expensive component. You'll just be able to grow it by virtue of, um, sometimes it's just by virtue of location. Um, I've seen that happen. Um, um, and you'll be able to maybe your um, hygienists or your procedures or what procedures you like to do, um, the, the selling dentist or practitioner wasn't able to do and you won't have to rewire your staff to be able to do that and you won't be able to, um, you won't have to deal with the resistance to change. Um, so it's very much in my mind a, a risk versus reward um, decision with also opportunity costs because one of the things that the dental market, especially in Alberta, um, it was a seller's market. There aren't too many things that are just available. There are not too many practices that are available to be bought. Um, there's, um, you have the ascension of corporate dentistry who's very visible. Um, so dentists who are contemplating retirement knows that they can go to one of the corporate entities and entertain a, a sale. Um, there's also multi-practice owners, um, they are also visible and oftentimes they, a selling dentist might already know one of those multi-practice owners because they went to school with them or what have you, so they're plugged in. So a new dentist who's looking to buy something um, might be waiting a while um, and in that, in the, as they wait and as they, they no doubt earn a good living as an associate, as they wait though, um, will they have let that location that was near to there where they wanted to set up and, and live, did they let that location go by? Um, and then did they miss that opportunity? So it's a, it's a, it's a difficult blend to, to make a decision and it's hard to figure out what is exactly a right answer. So there is no templated answer. It's really going to come down to how do you blend and weight all of those factors together? Right. So uh, can you briefly describe to me, you know, uh, if somebody who's also buying a practice, there are, you know, a little bit of different ways you can buy that practice. Mm -hmm. So the most, the conventional way is, is well, there's, there's mostly two streams where a, a buy comes aboard. Um, when a buy happens, um, mostly driven from the bank and also just good business sense and appraisals usually established. So most appraisers also broker those practice sales. So the appraiser will gather the data on the, the relevant data on the practice, the demographics, the active patients, the, um, uh, 
they'll look at how new the leasehold improvements are. They will look at the value of the equipment. They will look at the team there. They'll assess the team severance liabilities, all of those things. Um, they'll assess all of that. They'll look at the lease, the space. They'll put all that into a package. They'll look at the financial performance of the practice over a long period of time. They'll put all that into a nice package that can range anywhere from 30 to over 100 pages long. Um, and then a buyer is able to look at that and assess it. And typically they talk with um, buyers um, or they, they'll talk with their advisors about that particular practice and they will then start the process off of that fairly robust document. So you have a, a broker who has typically appraised the practice, then the purchasing professional will look at um, introducing at that point in time, if they like what they see, they typically enter into a letter of intent. On the letter of intent, they're not, lawyers have different opinions on them. Some say they're not worth anything because they're not binding and you can always wiggle out of them. Others will say that it's important just to put some pegs in the ground so they're not moved last minute just prior to the transaction closing, um, which I've also seen happen if there was no letter of intent signed. Um, and so once that's signed, then that usually allows you kind of an exclusive due diligence period, which might last anywhere from 30 to 90 days. And during that 30 to 90 days, you'll look under the hood of the practice and assess um, the charts and, and you'll look at um, lining up your financing. So start talking to your, your lending partners. Um, you will determine um, what type of how the transaction will actually happen from a tax point of which there are three to the most common are an asset sale versus a share sale. If you were a buyer in general, you like asset sales because um, there's not as much risk that, uh, that you'll take on as an asset sale. When you, when you purchase a share, you're walking into the operating history of that practice. When you purchase assets, it's kind of like grocery shopping. It's like, well, I want this, 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 and this, and I don't want this, and the rest can stay on the shelf. In general, you'll buy all the assets, but you won't assume the liabilities that the practice might have already had. Um, like maybe there's an employee claim or a, or a problem. Those, those problems will stay with, with the, um, with the, the selling um, dentist entity. Um, so an asset sale is very advantageous to the buyer from a legal and risk perspective. It's also advantageous from a tax perspective because all of those assets that the selling dentist has built up have depreciated over a long period of time. Um, so if you bought a, a dental chair um, in, if you bought a dental chair a while ago, it will start to depreciate down. Um, and when you buy in an asset sale, the value gets reset. Um, so an asset sale is very favorable to the buyer. Uh, a share sale is very favorable to the seller because thereafter, um, their lifetime capital gains exemption on qualified small business corporations here. So provided that the selling dentist is planned in advance to access that deduction, um, they will be able to um, benefit from a tax-free sale. Um, the problem that you have on the dental side is that is um, an easier 
transaction to facilitate for non-professional corporations. It is a harder transaction to facilitate for, um, well, it's a harder transaction for professionals. It is not as hard of a transaction to facilitate for non-professionals because professionals governing bodies restrict who can own those shares, which makes it difficult to acquire something and not put yourself in an adverse tax situation. And then the third one is, of course, a, a hybrid sale, which is um, difficult to explain in a, high, in, in a podcast, but it basically attempts to get the seller what they want and the buyer what they want, which is most often possible. It's just a more complicated transaction. So if it's a seller market, do you see more uh, sale shares or do you see asset shares? I, I mean, asset sale. If it is a seller's market, you'll typically see shares and then the buyer will try to get into a hybrid. But, and that can be a mathematical exercise where you can figure out what benefits um, you will gain under the hybrid. Generally, the dollars are big enough um, in a hybrid where it will justify the increased accounting and legal costs to be able to get you to the position that you want. So I would say that, that in, in recently, for me, it's it's almost been exclusively shares and hybrid. Um, I wouldn't say exclusively, but I would say at least 80 to 90 percent. Um, sometimes um, there are some other extenuating circumstances where asset sales um, have come into place, but generally there is and there is a uh, the seller will be put in such an adverse tax position under an asset sale um, that they will be willing to accept a lesser price for a share sale. Not oh, saying that the price will always be negotiable, um, but I've seen swings in, I've, I've seen swings from a buyer perspective as much as $400,000 of tax position in an asset sale versus a share sale. Um, so moral of story on that would be for the buyers. Um, they are looking uh, at um, at, at hybrids for the most part. It just makes sense to do that. Um, and, and for buyers as well, a, a hint of advice I would say is be, be careful what letter of intent you sign and make sure that it doesn't just concede a share sale to, um, to the seller. You might want to look at that and, and put language in your letter of intent that you're going to work together um, to find tax solutions for both parties. Interesting. So, I mean, whether a, dent a dentist decides to go the, you know, the build option or the buy option, most likely they need to start talking about the, to the bank, start getting, you know, the finance, the financing in place. Um, so, walk me through, um, you know, the the bank requirement and how does the accountant help, uh, you know, with the bank requirements? Sure. Well, in addition to the seller holding. A lot of the cards the bank is the second one who holds a lot of the cards because most dentists who buy practices and usually when you buy a practice I would say typically in Alberta it's a it's a seven digit um, sticker so typically the the practice or that the the acquiring professional does not have that available in liquid funds so you're going to need the bank so they hold the cards and what they want um, will be what you have to produce um, so it, it's fairly standard across the board. It's they'll want to check your credit, which is basic anytime you want to get new debt. So they're going to ask for your last two years of T1 generals. They're going to ask for your 
last two years of notice of assessment, the last for your last two years of statement account to make sure you've paid your taxes. So they'll look at those things personally. If you've already incorporated prior to entertaining the purchase, they'll ask for your last three years of financial statements. Um, if the appraisal is strong enough and if the interim financial statements from the seller are strong, they might not want much more than that to be able to issue kind of a discussion paper. Um, if you're going to um, immediately try to expand, for example, um, they'll probably want a business plan and they'll probably want a three-year forecast. And those are the things they also want if you're just going to build. Um, so, so when you say expand, like you want to renovate the practice, you want to add chairs? Add new operatories, things like that. They're going to want to say, well, let me assess your CV and your skill set. Like, are you able to keep up with this volume of work? Um, they'll want to look at that. They'll want to know how you plan to fill that practice up. Maybe you don't have to plan to fill it up. Maybe that work is already there because the existing dentist is just booked too far out and he doesn't want to expand. He doesn't want to be burdened with that. Um, so you're going to ask them for additional capital almost immediately after you acquire the practice. They're going to want to know where that capital is going and they're going to want to know what your plan is for that capital and how you're going to earn that money and pay it back. So the, the roads merge when um, for a buy and a build as far as information that a bank requires at that point in time because they're going to want to know, I'm going to give you access to this capital. They'll rely on the appraisal. Um, and as long as that can be transitioned successfully um, for the existing practice. But if you're going to expand or build a new one, they're going to want, you know, the typical things they check for any debt you want and, and credit. Um, but they'll also want to know what your plan is for that capital um, and how you'll execute it. And the, the mistakes you can make when doing those things is if you just fill something in so that boxes are checked and the banker's happy and that's it and nobody looks at it. And, and sometimes you could get away with that depending on who you're dealing with at the bank and depending on how aggressive they are in the healthcare industry. Recent, I would say that definitely now it's much more difficult. They don't just, as the space becomes more competitive and as new practices continue to merge and as corporate dentistry emerges, they want you to sharpen your pencil a little bit and think through what you're getting yourself into. I mean, realistically, it's likely the biggest financial transaction outside of unless you build a big fancy house it's probably the biggest <laughs> transaction of your life um, so you're going to want to think through um, where you're actually deploying this money and when it's been deployed how are you going to generate income off of that so for example you wouldn't want to put in your business plan that i plan to advertise aggressively is that there is new ownership and we have expanded business hours and we're going to advertise that and attract a whole bunch of new patients you wouldn't want to put that in your business plan and on your forecast, you just go to a generic industry 0.87% of revenue standard is my advertising budget. Well, those two stories don't make any sense. You're saying you're going to deploy a lot of capital when you write your business plan and then you're saying you're going to just be industry standard in your forecast. Um, so those are the big mistakes you can make and, and thinking through that um, it's been a, my, my advice would be not to approach that exercise from just a, the banker says I need it. So just please get me something that lets them check their box and that's it. 
Um, That's a good point. You want people to actually work through the, the number. Yeah, work you're going to want the them to work plan. through it because through that exercise, they're going to figure out like, okay, um, maybe it's not a good idea that I open my practice with two hygienists and three assistants and a full-time receptionist um, because I might be burning $50,000 a month with that structure. Right. Um, sometimes maybe it you know, might be beneficial to um, have a receptionist there to take calls and, and book and maybe you'll do some of the hygiene. Not saying that that's always good advice. If you are confident you're going to attract the patient flow, then it's not. But um, if you're not layering on a hygienist salary and um, and a lot of assistance and a lot of overhead might not be a prudent idea. Um, and you'll also turn your mind to when you're going to have to pay the bank back. Fairly standard in healthcare is they'll give you a year of interest only. Um, so it's pretty easy to make a practice float with interest only. Um, you can almost make it float if you maintain an associate um, position as well. But when the principal payments start to kick in, because the bank will typically amortize your loan over 10 years, so you'll have nine years to pay back the principal for the loan you got. That's where cash becomes tighter. Um, and Absolutely. and you have to be able to be positioned and um, to be able to make those payments back. So right. forecasting when you should hire staff and, and what your break-even points are and, and what your revenue targets need to be in order to make it float um, is a good exercise to go through before you commit to making the biggest purchase of your life. I mean, it's... It's, it's kind of like um, I would take it as seriously as they took the DAT because when they took the DAT, they probably studied for it because they were about <laughs> to make a four-year commitment and spend $100,000 and get a few hundred thousand dollars in debt to go into this career. Um, so it's, it's, I right. would view it as an academic exercise equal in waiting to that. That's a very, very, very good point, uh, you know, to, to, you know, for the dentist to actually think about this and think about the commitment uh, they're they're walking into. So, you know, um, let's say you know, okay, the the loan application went through. Now, you know, the 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 practice is, you know, built or bought. Now you have that wonderful practice. Now, from an operational standpoint, what are the things that are important to to start the business? Um, from my view, I mean, um, a good budget. Um, is important. Um, good processes and controls, good bookkeeper right off the hop to administer payroll because you'll be dealing with payroll um, almost immediately and, and, CRA, and, and that's done on at least a monthly basis. Um, and CRA looks at payroll every month and so if you make mistakes on that they're probably going to look at it and you'll have a very unpleasant experience. <laughs> um, and when you're an associate you can get away with not having um, um, maybe a bookkeeper in place and some infrastructure in place, you might be able to just cash that burden on your accountant. Well, it doesn't make economic sense to do that because when you're an associate, you might have, you know, 15 transactions a month by the time you collect your associate checks and pay your bank fees and pay yourself a salary and and um, pay your, your, you know, your office phone or what have you. Um, it, you know, that would probably be sufficient to put the burden on the accountant in an economical way. But when you have a clinic, now you have thousands of transactions a year. It doesn't make sense to burden your account with that. So a good bookkeeper to be able to process all of that and then report back how you are and compare that to your forecast. Like, are you on target or are you not? Where is the ship heading? Um, I would see those things are critical in addition to obviously the obvious things, which is, you know, patient experience and advertising and 
um, and uh, you know a good team around you. So strictly speaking from an accounting standpoint, I would say good bookkeeper systems, payroll, um, some segregation of duties and just how is how are you going to bill, collect and receive payment? Um, and there's thought and there's people and processes that need to be built behind that. Fantastic. Wow. Uh, Tom, you impacted a lot of information in this episode. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. No problem. Happy to help. Thank you for joining us today on Grow Your Dental Practice podcast. I'd like to thank our corporate partner, Zero, a beautiful accounting software. We use Zero for all our clients and they love it. If you'd like to know more information on myself or Shift Accounting, you can head directly to our website, shiftacct.com. You can visit the blog, sign up for our newsletter, or reach out to me directly at mohammed at shiftacct.com. Thank you.